for the listeners, Sonal just got off a flight from Houston, was it? Yes. To Mumbai, like probably a few hours ago, came straight to our offices to do an in-person podcast interview. Fellow Houston travelers, it's great to be here. Sonal's dad and my dad went to MS University together in Baroda. And so our families have known each other for a very, very long time. I think Sonal probably has a far greater memory of like me growing up than I do. <laughs> nope. You know, the funny thing about memories is that you sort of selectively choose to remember the things you want to, and then you selectively choose to remember the things you do not want to. So I think Sonal in a nice racing on it. I chose not to remember Devil as he was a young child. And Sonal has done phenomenal things in her career in working with multiple institutions, including the White House, Aspen, Google, Georgetown University, and the list goes on and on. And in fact, she just recently in January, right before our podcast interview, took on a role at Texas Tribune. Today's podcast will be about the Indian American pathway, demonstrating how while most parents sort of pushed their children to go into engineering or medicine, Sonal, her sister and brother, took a different pathway, really with a focus on development. You and your brother were inspirations for us starting Indicor and sort of how much your family and our family had done together, but it was much more around the social service stuff and the community service that our parents were doing. Exactly. And I think both our dads and moms did a lot in the Houston area. Yeah. And I think that, at least for me, I can say definitely was a big reason why I do what I do. Same. And I think while we have so many Gujaratis in particular in Houston, I think our parents, and I was speaking to your sister Rupal about this a few weeks ago, our parents were the unique in terms of other MS University graduates who ended up in Houston to like look after, of course, the family and all of that, but also have a much stronger bent to community. Absolutely. I have so much respect for our parents and our families. I mean, it's funny with age, you get older and you realize all the things that your family or parents did that you didn't even think about. But as I've gotten older and just to think about like, Creating community, creating community centers when there were what was nothing. And we talk about startups today, but they were the original startups and they would go find people and they would say, let's just bring people together and we'll start community events. And at the time, it wasn't just Gujarati or Punjabi or anything like that. It was largely, it was like the Indian community and they really made an effort to make that happen. And I have so much respect for what they did with how little they knew. And just making things happen. <laughs> and I haven't thought about the Gandhi Center in years. If you haven't been there recently, it's like this massive new facility that has two different halls that you can run 2,000 person events in. And they've got these office spaces that nonprofits can use. And it's amazing. I mean, again, like what our parents started, where we started with like collecting $500 from each family in Houston to build one center has now turned into this massive opportunity for our nonprofits. To your point, I just remember being, you know, a bratty teenager 
complaining. Why do we always have to go to Gandhi Same. Center? <laughs> Same. We always had to go to clean up. So I was like, why are we doing this again? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I remember that because we weren't there just to participate. We were there to also host and do yeah. things. So it was like, exactly. fucks. <laughs> All my friends are watching basketball. <laughs> They're not up at seven o'clock in the morning on Saturday doing cleaning. And I haven't been there clearly in such a long time just to think about how large it's become. And again, the goal of it was, like the name suggests, is to bring all Indians in Houston together and have a common purpose and find an identity. It's amazing how much our communities have changed and how much like how many more Indians there are in Houston. And when I went to high school, it was maybe 20 Indians in the whole school, but I graduated in a class of a thousand. And now it's like, people don't think about their, I mean, their identity is a part of who they are. Yeah, no, I mean, when I go to Sugarland, which is a suburb of Houston, where I was, of course, born and brought up in, it feels more diverse than Singapore. Exactly. Exactly. Houston is a very diverse city. And I don't think people give it, give it enough credit for how diverse it is. Yeah, no, and, and I think, I mean, I left in 93, and it's just gotten more and more diverse. Okay. But even before it was diverse, and I agree with you, I, again, this sort of stereotypical view of Texas, Houston is not that. And we've spoken about this again before, most of our sort of friends of Indian origin growing up in Houston became engineers or doctors. What was different about your experiences that led you and your sister and your brother to take a different path? You know, it's funny reflecting back in the people you're around and the people you do things with. So what you were talking about, the Gandhi Center earlier, a lot of our friends and, you know, if you think about our parents' friends, many of them ask their kids to take the safer options, right? And say, go become a good doctor, go become a good engineer. And they weren't wrong in that either, right? Because they had come, they were first generation immigrants. They were looking for stability. They didn't have it. So they were looking for their kids to have it. I think our parents were slightly different. They were like, go take a risk. And I remember my dad, when I was going to college, my dad said, you can't stay in Texas. You have to learn how to live on your own. And so when I went to University of Chicago, there was no question of whether to go or not. The question was like, okay, which of the colleges are you going to, but you have to go learn to live on your own. And he's like, as a young woman, this is important for you to build an independent identity. And so part of it is you get up in the morning and you go clean up or you have to go to the Godly Center and do these things. Part of it is just a recognition that when you are supported to go do that and you take those risks, you realize that it's not as big of a risk as you might think. could not agree with you more. And I know at least when my brother and I speak about this to others, whether it's our cousins or friends or whatnot, just sort of even understanding the economics of really how much do we need to be happy and sustain ourselves. And I guess that conversation, I feel, doesn't happen enough. Right. I mean, it's so funny. You know, I think what happens for a lot is like every time you think about taking a job, you're like, what's the salary? Right. And I remind young people, it's like, don't think about salary all the time. It's like, who's going to support you? Does the organization want you? Are you going to be able to grow? Is there a team around you that you can learn from that you want to be a part of? Like, we don't think about the value of that. And I've learned in my life, like, there are many times when I've taken jobs that were lateral moves, sometimes, you know, not even lateral, like just completely wanting to switch. And it wasn't the salary that satisfied me, right? It wasn't the salary, the reason I took it. The reason I took it is I learned something completely different. 
and it shifted your perspective and it changed your approach. And I think about it today for myself. It's like, do I like the people? Do I like the board? Am I enjoying this conversation? Is it forcing me to do research that I wouldn't have otherwise done? And is it intellectually and like mentally stimulating? Right. And that is the purpose of it. No, again, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and I think it's, it's sort of this, and I remember again, the few years I did work in sort of, uh, you know, of, in investment banking and got paid a ridiculous amount of money, which I'm very thankful for because I was able to pay off my college loans yeah. and then take the quote unquote risk of, of doing that. I was like, it's not a risk. I mean, money's going to be there. It doesn't yeah. matter. And I can always thankfully go back to a job like banking, which is very secure if I wanted to. But I, I, I guess in those instances, and again, I was only, you know, 22, 23 at the time, but I just remember many people would just come to work every day and complain about work and i'm like okay well if you're gonna spend eight to ten hours a day working and just hate that then why is that success right. like do something you love all the time <laughs> not just so you're getting paid all that money and you're still unhappy <laughs> exactly and 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 again i actually enjoyed banking too and i was like because it was learning yeah. it was smart people the rest of it uh but but the money was never like i mean i just felt like then you become sort of beholden to just the salary and it's just like and then you're just unhappy <laughs> I, I mean i think our stories are very parallel i think when i i went to work at accenture which is now in you know except what is now accenture which was in anderson consulting my dad told me one thing he's like you can do one of two things you can get a nice place and live in a nice place, or you could save up the money and pay off your loans. And I did what you did. I paid off my loans, but the freedom of paying off your loans. And when you were done with them, I was done with it in two years. Um, I got to work in federal government for, you know, eight years because I didn't have to worry about paying off my student loan. But I feel like there's this sort of, again, narrative that I need to make this much to be successful or to sustain. And then again, when my brother and I always speak about this, we're like, we've been so fortunate. We're already part of the 1%. Right. <laughs> and so it's right. like the risks we think we're taking by taking even a 50% pay cut. And at least for me, you know, moving to India and doing this, I was like, we grew up very middle class and we were still able to our parents were still able to instill values in us where it's like if you have more doesn't necessarily mean your quality of life of you or your children even at least that was yeah. you know going through our mind and still is at times but i'm like that's not you don't need money to give your children values and a good upbringing we didn't have it our parents didn't have it no i mean and and, and you know again we did fine I, and i think this is also what's interesting in the social sector you know in the sectors that we're in it's also changed in the 25 years we've been in, right? Like there were not that many options when you first started. If you wanted to do policy, you had to go to government. Now I could be in a nonprofit. I could be in a think tank. I could be in so many different places working on policy in different ways. I don't have to just work in government. Um, you could do social sector in a corporation. You could do social sector between nonprofit and company. There's so many options today that did not exist 25 years ago. So I think, almost think the challenge is a paradox of choice. And I mean, on that note, and literally the list is too long for us to even cover in this 45 minute conversation, but Goldman Sachs, the White House, Google, Texas Tribune now, United Way, Indicor, 
I mean, you've done so many different things. How do you like take these new opportunities and like, isn't it scary? Yeah, it's always scary. It's scary even when you're changing within the organization you are. I mean, just look at what you've done with Dustrap from where you started to where you are. Every time you've made a leap, it's scary. So a job is the same. It's like every time you make a leap, it's scary. But you have the confidence that you know who you are and why you're doing it. And then you learn from that to do more. Okay, so, you know, let's start with Indicorp. We moved to India not ever having lived in India, right? Like you, my brother moved here. I sort of just showed up as an interloper to help out. But you come and you start an organization because you believed in the idea of the mixing of two cultures, the American part of you and the Indian part of you. And how do you do service in a country that is your heritage? But where you're also a stranger. Yeah. And how do you think about that? You know, and how do you evolve as a person? But we strongly felt it for ourselves. And I think that sort of invested in a generation of leaders that thought differently and did that. It's scary. But you sort of start doing it and you're like, well, there's you were already here. Your brother was doing stuff. There were other people we knew here. And all of a sudden you're like, well, this is a there's a community here and you're going to sort of figure it out. And I think the thing that I've learned in my life is I can figure it out. So in 1995, even before we started Indicor, I moved to Sarajevo, Bosnia. And I was at the Department of Treasury and we were supposed to go post-conflict. The U.S. government had just finished bombing there. And we were supposed to set up a new central bank and start to do nation building. I mean, I was 26. What do I know about nation building, right? But you go there and you're like, okay, I have no idea what it's going to be like. I don't know what the life is going to be like. I don't know what kind of food is going to be available. I'm vegetarian. I don't even know if there's anything there. But you figure it out. I realized for myself at that time, and the confidence for me was, I don't know anything about anything, but I know I can talk to the right people and figure out how to get something done. And I think that's what I would say for myself. And each person's got their own sort of thing that they can do. And you have your, each one of us has our own superpowers. Mine is I can go into chaos and figure out a place, a way forward. And even in non-chaos, I can figure out a way, a path forward. Like, what's the next set of things? I will listen to people, I will hear them, and then we'll figure out a pathway to move forward. And you do that already with companies and the work that you do here. But each of us has our own superpowers. It's tapping into what are you good at and not trying to be what you're not good at. <laughs> yeah. I know one of the things that I think is quite amazing, and I've tried to thought, you know, I've thought about it a lot and try to figure out sort of why this occurred but houston has been the hub as it relates of course to america for indian ngos yeah like you said indicor you all started dasra pratham and i guess my hypothesis has been because our parents generation came to houston at a time where most people were engineers like our fathers and we grew up middle class because of that. And I say that because I think in New York, there was another group, I think, that perhaps came slightly past our parents' generation yeah. who went into banking. Yeah. Uh, the tech boom happened probably 20 years after our parents shifted. Yeah. Because we all grew up middle class in Houston, it was much easier to make these choices because we weren't really giving up stuff. But, I mean, what are your thoughts on how Houston became the hub for, like, 
And again, I'm saying in the U.S. context, not at all comparing it to the hub of what everything phenomenal stuff that's happening here in the country in India. But like, why do you think so many sort of NGO initiatives, even Akshay Patra, Magic Bus, I mean, the list goes on and on. Why do you feel like that was in Houston and still remains in Houston, even though there are, of course, wealthy Indians now in Houston, too, and people who want to give back. But it doesn't compare to like, you know, New York or the Bay Area. I feel like there's a heart in Houston, right? In the sense of like, people are there and they believe in something. And it's the community, not just the Indian community, but the community of Houston, whether it's the, you know, the Vietnamese community or the Latino communities or the black communities or even in the white communities. It's like, there's a heart there of people wanting to do something. And so I think a cost of living is not that expensive, which is helpful, although it's become a lot more expensive. B, I think when we all got there and we forgot, like in the early 70s and 80s, when people were moving to Houston, it was an amalgamation of people from Detroit, New York, California, Chicago, moving to Houston for an engineering boom that was happening. But there was very much a community centric. So there was no Gujarati community, Punjabi community, and and in the South Indian communities, it was one community. And so what you had was people working together to do something for their community. And I still see, and I see it with my parents, the number of their friends that are non-Gujarati is actually very high because they've known each other for a very long time. And it continues today because I think the Akshay Patras, the Ekals, the Brathams all exist, Dasras all exist because of that. And people were willing to support somebody else's organization. I've never been to a fundraiser in Houston where someone doesn't say good things about somebody else's organization, right? They don't distinguish. They sort of say, okay, if you're doing good, let's just participate in it because it's important. There's something about that where it's so empowering when you're a person starting an organization to feel like there's already a network of support, even though there are other organizations. It doesn't feel competitive. It feels like additive. And it's an additive space. You're still trying to do good. Well, let's invest in that. I have to give Vijay Gauradia a lot of credit. Like I, the heart by which he operates is pretty amazing. No, I mean, I completely agree. And I still credit Vijay Uncle and Pratham with why Dasra was started. Because when I was, I think, in college, I would come back home and... India Bazaar, which happened yeah. on August 15th, I believe, which was at the Gandhi Center at one point of time, I was manning a Pratham booth. And I saw for the first time, I guess, you know, from the brochures and the conversations, at least what was happening with the Balbadi system, which is up at the beginning. And again, because of my dad was got really engaged. And I think when we started Dasra, the view was, how do we start a thousand Prathams in India? Yeah. And Vijay Uncle, I think, set the pathway of enabling nonprofit organizations and NGOs in India to have access to larger amounts of flexible funding to really then enable Pratham to do what they've done. And again, it's the team, it's Rukmani, it's Madhav, it's everyone there, no questions at it. But I was like, at least from a Dasra perspective, it was how do we enable NGOs who don't have connections in America? Yeah or a champion to still get that flexible funding, just like Pratham got because of each and grow and scale and create, you know, impact because education is not the only way out of poverty. You need education, you need health, you need economic opportunity. 
as humans, we're not individuals. Like we're not just a, we're not so singular that we don't have a holistic perspective ourselves. I want to point out the one, the thing that you're sort of at the heart of, which is so important is the confidence it builds in someone to give that type of money, the flexible funding. I don't think it can be underestimated. And you got it, you know, I've received it. But that sort of build of like, okay, I can figure this out because someone, I don't have to go back and say, well, I need it for this now. Now I need it for that. When someone gives you flexible funding, you feel like you can figure out the organization. When you don't have that and you only get it for A and you don't get it for B, then you're like, okay, I have to do A, but what if I need to do B? I can't do it then. I served, uh, you know, I served on the board of a couple of startups and it's like, how many startups thought they were starting here and ended up somewhere else, right? Because they learned that the market didn't want it or they needed to do something different or they had. And when you're an investor, you think, okay, well, go where the market is. Well, why don't we think the same in philanthropy? So if we were to think that way of the NGOs that get started, you don't go into an NGO career because you want to make money. You don't go in because you're like, oh, I'm going to prove to the world I'm a better NGO than the next NGO. You go in because you see a need. You see where you could fill that need and you hope that you connect with other NGOs that can fill the other needs because you're not going to fill all of those needs, right? And sometimes you do all of it. Sometimes you do some of it, right? But you figure that out. If we trust people for that, and I think this is a fundamental question we have as a society to think about, is trust. Again, when we unpack sort of the inefficiencies of philanthropy, it's exactly that, where the trust is not given, which means you're not giving the independence of the NGO leader to make decisions as they see small or big shifts in the communities they serve. And I remember we do a lot of work with adolescent girls and boys, but really with the goal of preventing child marriage, early pregnancies, enabling girls to make the right decisions early on in India for a variety of reasons, have the highest number of child marriages. And I still remember going to a community in Jharkhand about nine or 10 years ago where child marriage was more prevalent and speaking to community leaders through our NGO partners, of course. And these parents were saying how the government sort of would come down back then even and say, child marriage is illegal and you shouldn't do it. NGOs would come and say, you're ignorant and you shouldn't do it. And the community would not listen to sort of those, you know, dictates because they, for them, it was like, we don't either. Right. When someone tells you not to do something, how do we behave? You have to give again, give people the chance to understand. And that's exactly what this organization was doing, which is explaining on how in this particular village for generations, so many mothers I mean, and their children would die during childbirth. And so when we explained it to them and the organization explained it to them, they said, if this stops, if somebody told us that, that you will save our daughters or daughter-in-laws and grandchildren, we would have stopped it in a second. But no one told us that. So even my own family, when I think about it, my grandmother was married at the age of 13, yeah. right? My mom was married at the age of 20. And my brother got married at the age of 30, right? Yeah. Like there's a different level of change that's taking place historically. But each one of those generations learned something, but they learned it. And I think that's the critical piece of why all NGOs that do good work 
are really at the end of the day focusing on empowering the communities to make decisions and giving them information, but then not sort of saying, this is what you have to do. Because the government's already doing that. I mean, the private sector does it. Everyone does it. And if it's not working, which is why civil society needs to exist. Because, you know, government machinery and private sector have failed these communities. Well, and they're looking for efficiency when this is not an efficient process. I think we think in economic terms and we apply in economic terms to what is not an economic problem. What the problem is, is a social structure problem that information is heard differently. People make decisions for different reasons. It's a different group. Not everybody's hearing it the same way, but actually COVID is a great example of how efficiency actually has worked, right? Just think about the messaging for vaccines, the messaging for masking. Let me just talk about the United States. I live in Texas. 15% of people do not get a vaccine. It's not because information isn't existing. It is because there is so much out there that is coloring people's perspectives. And if we just keep using the same hammer over and over and over again and thinking this is a nail, we're not going to succeed at this, right? Society has changed. Government continues to do the things that it has done the way it has done them. Business continues to do the things that it's done the way it has done them. It is why I think what the NGO sector has been doing over the last 25 years is adapting to that change at such a rapid pace. You all existed during COVID and still got money out to communities and still were able to support because you have the adaptation and the ability to do that. That is what the NGO sector is efficient at. They adapt faster than government can or businesses can. And they adapt it, but they also can deliver at a time, and sometimes not always easy. But flexibility for that matters a lot. If you just apply a business lens to it, like an efficiency lens to it, you'll miss the effectiveness lens. And we should always be asking, are we effective, not are we efficient? Unfortunately, I think this has seeped to into the NGO sector as well in civil society at times. And I say this because many people, again, to create wealth, you typically need to run a business or have somebody in the family who's done so. And that is driven by a level of 80%. The market, this is where you share all of that, right? It's never looking at the 20%. And then the same sort of philosophies of somebody who, again, has run a business, you know, for 20 hours, 24 hours a day, for whatever, for how many years, they then think this is that level of efficiency can come into the NGO sector, not realizing that they were in markets that were already created with customers who already existed. Like you're not focusing on, for example, if you're a manufacturer of smartphones, you're not focusing on those who can't afford it or those who've never used a phone before. And you're only focusing on those that are there. And I say this, at least in terms of the development side, in particular, for example, development impact bonds. I think at times it sort of forces then NGOs to work with those communities who already had a chance because they're like, I don't want to go to the real vulnerable communities because if I do, I won't get paid for my results. And it's really too bad that development impact bonds have become that. Because that was not the intent of not at all. So the intent of development impact bonds was how do we show the government a different approach to solving a problem that eventually the government should pay for? Because they're not good at it. Government's never been good at innovation. Yeah. And it nor should it be. Right? It's not the job. They're supposed to be, you know, blunt instrument. 
So teach them the blunt instrument differently. But now what it's become is its own finance mechanism to show you I can earn money on it and I can earn a return. It was never about the return, ever. It was always about innovation so the government could eventually could do its job better. And I think in philanthropy, to your point, whenever that is in development impact bond, unfortunately happens to be one of these financial instruments that the whole world then celebrates and runs to. And there's a purpose for it, but knowing also development impact bonds may not, for example, help the most vulnerable communities because it'll take five years, for example, for certain communities who are nomadic in nature and migrants to have high learning outcomes because every three months the families shift and so they can't be at a school and so if i'm getting funded by someone who wants learning outcomes to go up i won't work with those communities if i'm managing a portfolio i look at multiple instruments right so there's bonds there's equities there's high-risk investments there's lots of things you can do you have to look at the community first and figure out what's the right mechanism by which to serve them. When you go to the vulnerable migrant communities, what are the right tools to use for that that are not financial instruments, but might be just a good NGO that provides the services at the time that's needed? And it's not going to be perfect yeah. because those communities are changing and they're evolving. And I think that's the whole issue is that we celebrate and again, the same thing happens in for-profit markets, but we end up celebrating financial instrument. But when you're talking to your client, if you're a high net worth yeah, yeah, portfolio right. manager, yeah. you're talking to your client about a portfolio. You're not talking to them about, you know, just this, let me just sell you this thing over and over again. If you're a good manager of that portfolio, you're actually thinking about that person and what their needs are. That is what we need to think about. It's what you all do at Dustra. It's like, what are the needs of the communities and where do we need to make investments in the nonprofit sector that help fill that? And that is what you all do extraordinarily well. And that, that is something that we all need to look at. It's like when you're making an investment, actually a literal investment, I don't, a grant or a gift is also an investment in a community, think about the need of the community. Philanthropist at least our exposure to this is more in the Indian context. The same may happen everywhere, but there's this view also that once I, you know, earn enough and I start giving, I want urgent solutions. And, and at least my conversation to givers who really feel strongly about urgent solutions and the rest of it, I'm like, if you really cared about urgency, the NGOs that we support did not wait till they made their million to solve the problem. They did it at the age of 18 or 20 or even 13 or whatever. And so talking about urgency and again, calling the NGO sort of inefficient when I'm like, but then why didn't you 30 years ago start giving money <laughs> instead of building an empire, making sure everyone is fine. And then like the NGO leaders are the most urgent in the community. The one, the mothers who are making less than $2, they, they have a far greater sense of urgency than any of us do. But philanthropists usurp that term and like, we care about urgency. Uh, let me take the concept of philanthropy for a second and for your listeners to think about it as we are all philanthropists, right? I give every year, maybe not as much as, you know, somebody that's got multi-million dollars, but I get $30,000 a year. How I choose to give that and how we all individually choose to give matters. And so I think we should all think of ourselves as philanthropists and not leave it to the realm of a few. 
because the mass is where the philanthropy actually is. And that is every little bit, whether it's a thousand dollars, whether it's a thousand rupees, whether it's 2000 rupees, whether it's 5,000 rupees, you're a philanthropist. And when you think about that, think about how you want to give and to whom you give and why. Give with your heart, but give with trust. We at Istastra, we add one more component to it, which is, again, giving is very needed. No questions asked, and it's good to celebrate givers. We celebrate givers, for example, who give, let's say, a million dollars or you know, 10 crores rupees. But our view is, if you're running an NGO who has a 10 crore budget or a million dollar budget or more, you're as much of a philanthropist as the one who's giving the capital because you've enabled impact. In fact, it's harder to run an organization or a business than be an investor. And so we celebrate both. And I'm like, you're actually adding the same amount. We need to start celebrating again these organizations because they're doing the same thing. NGOs are not, not businesses. Exactly. Right. An NGO is a business. It's got a different tax status, but at the end of the day, it's a business. I'm going to run an NGO. The Texas Tribune is a nonprofit, but it's a business. You still have to make payroll. Yeah. You still have to bring in money. You still have to pay for events. You still have to pay for salary increases. All of those things that a business runs, an NGO still has to do. You still have to retain staff. All of those things that every business is thinking about, I bet you are thinking about all the time. <laughs> right? Right. How do I retain somebody? How do I make sure they don't leave? How do we make sure they're happy? What do they need to do? What do we need to invest in? Because you want to invest in your people. Because if they're doing well, they're going to help others do well. And not just monetarily, but mentally, physically. Are they over, you know, are they overtired? Are they getting stressed? All of that matters. So I think NGOs are also businesses. So, yeah. and I don't mean in a business sense, but they're running an organization. Yeah. And it's important that we, again, trust people to run good organizations because that's what it takes to serve. You mentioned Texas Tribune. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. So I am lucky in many ways. I've been living in Texas the last three years and I'm going to be starting as CEO of the Texas Tribune on January 1st, following an incredible leader who had a vision 13 years ago to create a newspaper in Texas that's digital first 13 years ago to focus on Texas policy and politics. And really from a Texas perspective, not an Austin perspective or not a Houston perspective or not a Dallas perspective. And he has turned it into an incredible organization that is a leading nonprofit news organization in the country to show how nonprofit news can work and invest in communities. And I get to luckily follow an amazing founder who is willingly is leaving, <laughs> said actually a year ago he was going to leave. And, you know, I've learned from him on what a graceful way to start an organization and leave an organization looks like. And everything you and I have been talking about from a nonprofit perspective so they can make decisions about their lives, about their government, about the communities around them is super important. And making sure that's independent is even more important. So I think independent journalism is a critical place to be. When you think about what, why news was first created, journalism was first created, it was to create an independent voice that is not government, that is not business, that is not beholden to any of the societal pillars to allow and make sure communities had access to information about what was happening. So when they were making choices, 
whether it's civic choices or other choices, they had access to information. And that at the core is why it matters, right? It's democracy. When you think about why democracy matters, it's because we have independent news that can hold a government accountable, that can hold businesses accountable, that can hold nonprofits accountable. That pillar has been always critical. The fourth pillar of democracy, as many have said, and I cannot imagine a more important time to be looking at news and the media and to build independent that you are not beholden to any one party, any one organization, any one group, and to be able to have that independence and to be able to speak independently. That is at the core of why change happens. And I think in the Indian context, we definitely continue to celebrate freedom fighters. Correct. And they, of course, should be celebrated. But I feel like independent news and journalists are also freedom fighters. Absolutely. Because freedom is not a one-time thing. It's not a moment in time, exactly. right? It is constant, and we have to constantly be vigilant about it. And those are not easy jobs. I mean, I have such respect for journalists because... It is not easy to go in and find those stories. It is not easy to report on hard stuff. Because sometimes it takes a little bit of your soul away when you keep seeing all of those things. And I think in globally, independent journalism has, or journalism as a whole, I guess, has taken a real hit. And the independence of that is harder and harder. And at the same time, you have and maybe because of this, you have then fake news everywhere. Yeah. And I think as humans, we sort of want to believe that someone's giving us a biased story. And yes, every time someone history, everything is written from a perspective. So there's always going to be some bias because we always have some perspective. But recognizing that and understanding that is super important. Losing faith and trust in it is dangerous. Because we need independent voices. And if we lose faith in the fact that the independent voices are giving us independent things that we may not be comfortable with, well, that's what society needs. Thank you, Sonal. This has been a phenomenal conversation. It's so nice to see you. Thank you for participating on this podcast right after you landed. And good luck with your new job. We're in this journey together, and I can't imagine a better group of people to be on a journey with. Subscribe to No Cost Extension on your favorite podcast platform. Find us at dasra.org forward slash NCE for more details.